postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising a white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. All right. How to Study the Bible, Part 1. I want to invite you guys to open your Bibles to the book of John, Chapter 5. John, Chapter 5. For what I promise you, for some of you, will be one of the most uncomfortable sermons you've ever heard which is weird because a sermon titled How to Study the Bible should be pretty straightforward. Um, But what I'm going to share with you guys today, I'll be working through the Bible and um, also uh, looking at a lot of what Ellen White has to say on this topic. It it was really confronting for me when I first encountered it, and and I want to share it with you guys today. Confronting but beautiful, confronting but beautiful. John chapter 5, verse 39. John chapter 5, verse 39. I'm going to do my best, by the way, guys. Uh, keep me in prayer as, um, as I work through this because I did spend two days in bed. So hopefully my brain is up to the task this morning. Job chapter 5, verse 39. If you're there, say I'm there. All right, beautiful. Here we go. Uh, whoops, I went too far. There we are. It's on the screen as well. If you can see it, I'll make sure that my text is thicker and bigger next time. Here it says, John chapter 5, verse 39. You, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, you... Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I love this verse. It's not the first time it's in one of my sermons. You guys might recognize it, Um, but I want to focus on it in a really special way this morning. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And I want to dissect what he's saying here because if you read it too quickly, you miss the discomfort of what's actually happening in this text. And there's beauty in that discomfort. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. Now, here's the thing. In modern Christianity, the Pharisees get a really bad rap. And understandably so, they're kind of like the antagonists in the Gospels, right? They're always causing problems for Jesus, and they're always judging him and attacking him. Um, And so what we've tended to do is we've tended to look at the Pharisees and just kind of relegate them to the pile of weirdos that we don't pay a lot of attention to. But if you look at the historical context of the Pharisaical community, They were actually really impressive. The antagonists in the story, yes, but they were really, really impressive. So let me give you guys a bit of background on this. For example, if you're a boy who was born into a Pharisee family, so you were going to grow up to be a Pharisee, there was a tradition that your family had with every single boy that was born in the family. The tradition went something like this. When the boy turned two years old, they would take the scroll of the law, that's the Torah, right? The first five books of Moses, and they would put honey on the scroll. 
And then they would take the two-year-old child and they would have the child lick the honey off of the scroll. Now you're thinking, what in the world would you do something that weird for? This was their thinking. This was an, a ritual, a tradition that they had because they wanted their child's earliest memory to be Psalms 119.103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Isn't that nice? It's a little weird, but you know. You can appreciate the sentiment. Now listen to this. At four years old, this child would start memorizing the book of Leviticus. Some of us can't even get through chapter one of Leviticus, and we're like 40 years old. It's like you start reading, you're like, what is going on? This is so weird. Four years old, they would start memorizing the book of Leviticus. By 12 years old, this child had memorized Genesis through Deuteronomy. Can you believe that? I mean, sometimes I'm like, oh, I feel so good. I memorized three new verses this month. Like these kids, you know, by the time they were 12, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all the entire thing committed to memory. It's amazing. And by the time that they reached the teenage years, they would begin memorizing the prophets and the Psalms. They took the word very seriously, the Pharisees. They rejected cultural adaptations of the word. And this is something that's taking place when you read in the Gospels that the Pharisees and the Sadducees wouldn't agree with each other. is because the Sadducees were trying to bring Greek Hellenism as a way of interpreting the text. And the Pharisees kind of built a wall against that. They, were, they took the word very seriously. They didn't want to adapt it to culture. They committed themselves to a strict and inflexible reading of the text. And if these guys were here, as much as we talk bad about them in a lot of our sermons, we would probably give them the highest positions in our church. They were impressive. They had a no-compromise approach. For example, one of the things that the Pharisees did leading up to the time that Jesus was born is they went through the Old Testament. And they wanted to make sure that Israel would never turn its back on God like it had before the Babylonians invaded. And so they went through the Old Testament. They said, how can we be faithful to God? They counted 613 laws in the Old Testament. And then they decided that in order to make sure the Israelites did not break all 613 laws ever again, they created what became known as fence laws. I don't know if you guys ever heard the term fence law before, but a fence law is kind of like, here's the law, and we're going to build a fence around it so you never even get close to breaking it. So we're not supposed to carry burdens on the Sabbath, so we're going to make a fence law that says that if your house is burning on Sabbath, you can't bring your clothes out of it because that's carrying a burden. That's a fence law, right? You can't drag a stick because that is reaping the soil or, or prepping the soil on Sabbath, and you're not supposed to. That's a fence law. It's laws that God hadn't, invent, they hadn't given, but they invented them. And here's the thing. The Pharisees were so serious, they made up 1,500 of these because they assumed that the best way to keep people from breaking God's law was to build a fence or a protective barrier around the law. And in, in some ways, in some weird ways, these guys would make really good Seventh-day Adventists. But here's the thing. Jesus says to these same men, you are blind 
guides. Jesus says to these same men, you don't really understand the scriptures. And you have to be like, you've got to put yourself in the Pharisees' shoes and be like, who is this guy? I've been memorizing this book since I was a child. Who is this guy who's telling me that I'm a blind guy, that I don't understand the scriptures? As we read through the narrative, we see that their approach to Scripture, the pharisaical approach to Scripture, not only led them to reject Jesus, their approach was at the root of their mistreatment of sinners. Their approach to Scripture was at the root of their justification of rudeness in the name of faithfulness. I meet people like that in church sometimes. They're like really rude, and when you call them out on it, they act like they're just being faithful. It's like, no, don't do that. You're being rude, okay? Using God as an excuse to cover our pathologies. It was at the root of their clashes with Jesus, the way that they approached the Bible. And ultimately, it was their commitment to their reading of the text that led them to kill Jesus. Now, the question is why? Why was this the reality in the Pharisee's life? And the answer is this, and I want you to listen very carefully, and then I'm going to repeat it. Because reading the Bible doesn't give you life. I'm going to say that again in a room full of Seventh-day Adventists, a people of the book. Reading the Bible doesn't give you life. You say, Marcus, I disagree. Well, I invite you to ask this gentleman, Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is one of the most renowned New Testament scholars of our day. The guy is quoted everywhere. You can't deal with New Testament scholarism, if that's even a word, without running across Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman does not believe in God. This is from one of his books. He's written a lot of books. He's a very well-renowned scholar. This is one of, from one of his books. I don't believe that the God of the Bible exists, the God who intervenes in history and answers prayer. New Testament scholar. Reading the Bible doesn't give you life. And, and see, this is the thing. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. Go back to what Jesus is saying. This, this is what he says. He says to the Pharisees, you read the Bible because you think it will give you life, yet you refuse to come to me so that you actually get life. In other words, what Jesus is saying, uncomfortably so, is the Bible doesn't give you life. I give you life. So if your reading of the Bible doesn't lead you to Jesus, you're wasting your time. You can memorize all the texts, become an expert at all the doctrines, understand all the symbols, explain all the intricacies. But if you miss Jesus, the entire thing means nothing. And what this means on a practical level is that there is a way of reading the Bible that leads to life. And there is a way of reading the same Bible that leads to death. And I want to know the difference. So in the next few sermons, like I said earlier, I want, I want to focus on this. I want to focus on how to study the Bible with the goal of receiving life, with the goal of encountering Jesus. 
So I'm going to start like this. I'm going to start by giving a brief overview on how reading the Bible works. And then I'm going to walk back into the text and we're going to look at Ellen White and we're going to see a few interesting things there uh, as we lay the foundation. And then in the next sermon, I'll dig a little bit deeper. And then in the third sermon, we'll, we'll close it off and move on to something else. But let me start like this. A lot of people assume that when you grab the Bible, that the, the way that in which you understand the Bible is you open it and you read a text and that's the end of it. You understand it. But it's not actually that simple and here's why. Every single time you open the Bible, and this is true of any book including the Bible, when you open the Bible to read it, what a lot of people don't realize is you've got a set of glasses on. And I'm not talking about the physical glasses. You've got a set of glasses. Those glasses represent prior beliefs. And they come from your culture and your history and your upbringing and your insecurities and all kinds of stuff, right? And so when you open the Bible, you've got those glasses on and they impact the way you read the text. So for example, I might open the Bible and, and, and there's a verse and it says, for example, the paper is white. But I've got a set of glasses that are red tinted. And so when I read that text, I read the paper is red. And then Jillian has a set of glasses that are blue tinted. And he reads the same text and says, the paper is blue. And then we start arguing with each other. And then Jillian goes starts the church of the blue paper and I go start the church of the red paper, even though the text says the paper is white. All of us, when we come to the text, we bring these prior beliefs. It's part of being human. You can't get rid of them. They're there. Most of the time, you can't even identify them. And this is why it's so important, so important, whenever you open the Bible to read it, anytime you open it to explore it, that you ask the Holy Spirit to be your glasses. You say, God, let your Holy Spirit open my eyes to see what you want me to see. Because if you're reading this book without the help of the Holy Spirit, you will never find life. You'll just be like Bart Ehrman, lots of scholarly insight and knowledge and no life. So the first thing to note, and this is obvious, and a lot of you know this, but I think it's worth repeating. Whenever you open this book, pray first and say, God, I know I've got these glasses on, but I want your Holy Spirit to help me to see Jesus. But there's more. There's more. I want you to notice what's happening in this text. I'm going to, I think I've got it here again. Yes. I want you to notice what's happening in this text. There's something really uncomfortable and bizarre happening in this text. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because they, you think they give you eternal life. Now, I want to pause there for a second and ask a really obvious question. Why did the Pharisees think that? Why did the Pharisees think if we read the book, well, there's eternal life there? And it's really obvious because Scripture is not a human document. It's divine. And if it's divine, if it communicates God's will, then it's perfectly logical to conclude that in this book you're going to find eternal life. But Jesus disagrees. And here's the thing that we miss when we read the text too quickly. He disagrees. He says, you think they give you eternal life. They don't. I do. 
And what we see here, what we begin to see here, is a really interesting dynamic in the way the Pharisees read Scripture versus the way that Jesus read Scripture. The Pharisees are focusing on the words of Scripture, whereas Jesus is pointing them beyond the words toward himself. I think I've got that on a slide here, just in case it's hard to follow. Yeah, the Pharisees are focused on the words of Scripture, whereas Jesus is pointing them beyond the words and toward himself. A perfect example, just by, just by way of example, is this uh, eye for an eye episode, right? Now, guys, I'm telling you, you got to put yourself in the Pharisees' shoes. Don't look at this from the modern age backwards, but be a Pharisee for this morning and look at it through those eyes so you can feel the discomfort, right? Jesus comes, and this is the only time he does. Jesus does this all the time. Jesus comes along and he says, you've heard that it was written, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, now you're a Pharisee. You know the scriptures ever since you were a child, right? And, and, and they're in Deuteronomy, right? Take these words and memorize them and put them on your hands and your forehead. I mean, this is, this is, this is uncomfortable. Along comes this guy from Nazareth and says, you've heard that it was said, but I say. And if you're a Pharisee, you're like, wait a minute. You can't do that. If I was a Pharisee back then, I'd be quoting that text. Hey, Jesus guy, uh, to the law and to the testimony. If you speak not according to this word, there is no lighting. And that's what a lot of them did. That's why they rejected him. And yet this is, this is the Jesus that we look at and say, hey, he's the one that was right. So what in the world is going on here? Jesus says, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, love your enemies. Now what Jesus is doing, he's not contradicting the text. It's not that the word and Jesus are against each other. It's that the word points to Jesus. But what Jesus is doing is he's not contradicting the text, but he's going beyond the text into what the text is pointing to. And this is what the Pharisees were missing. Jesus is saying that you can't just get caught up in the words of the text. You've got to follow them toward their ultimate meaning. And the ultimate meaning of all the scripture is that God is restoring all things back to their original design. So even though it says an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, the truth is the place that God is leading all of us is love your enemies. And the Pharisees couldn't hack that because the Pharisees were obsessed with the words and Jesus was pointing them toward the Word, capital letters. In other words, Jesus is pointing them beyond the words to the Word, the ultimate message in Scripture. So the words then, according to Jesus, are tools that get us to the Word. And here's what Jesus is saying. The words don't give life. I give life. So the words are only meaningful because they point to me. Now, if you're sitting here and you're like, man, this is uncomfortable, good. It should be uncomfortable. This should not be comfortable. This should be weird, okay? But follow with me. The ultimate point that Jesus is saying is this. Jesus is what makes the Bible come alive. 
So Jesus is pushing the Pharisees in a different direction. He's instead saying that the words of Scripture, the words that they're reading on the text, the words that they're memorizing, the words that they're focusing on, are not the point. The point is what the words are pointing to, and they're pointing to him. But the Pharisees missed it because they were more obsessed with the words. So this is what Jesus is saying. The words point to the word himself. But the Pharisees were so obsessed with the words that they completely missed the word. And my question is, do we do the same today? And the answer is yes. I've encountered it all my life. There is a tendency, even today, to elevate the words of Scripture to such a height that we miss the point. In fact, it was happening in Ellen White's day as well, and she wrote about it. And I want to share some of those statements with you guys. Here's, here's one of them. I'll share a few of them, and, and then we'll, we'll work our way through them. Here's a statement from Manuscript 24. Well, you can find it in First Selected Messages. Chapter, page 20 to 28, the whole thing. I'm going to quote from, from those, a few statements from those pages. So this is what Ellen White says. She says this, It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired. When I first read that statement, you know what happened to me, Jillian? I was like, no, she didn't write that. that that's not true. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. No, that's, that's not okay. She says, it is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. Now, why did I freak out the moment I, the, the very first time I read this statement? This is why I freaked out. Back in the 1900s, you know, late 19th century, early of 20th century, there was a movement brewing in light of the Enlightenment. And it was a movement within the church that was attempting to reinterpret the Bible through science and evolution. It's what be has become known today as the liberal movement in, in a lot of places. And there was this tendency to look at the Bible and say, this is just a human book. It's full of errors and it's full of mistakes. And if we really want to get something out of it, we have to reinterpret it in light of modern-day science and evolution and all these things, right? Um, and so in response to this movement, many evangelical Christians began to popularize the idea as a way to push back against this movement. They began to popularize the idea that every single word in the Bible was placed there by God himself. It's called the verbal dictation theory, that when the authors of Scripture wrote the Bible, God specifically dictated word for word every single word that was going to go in there. And this was seen as a way to fight back against the liberalism. And I had believed this idea. This is how I related to Scripture. And so when I first read this, I was like, what? But it goes on. She goes on, again, first selected messages, page 21. The Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God as a writer is not represented. 
Men will often say such an expression is not like God, but God has not put himself in words and logic and rhetoric on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. Now, this is really insightful because up to this point, whenever I imagined the biblical writers writing what God had inspired them to write, it was almost as if they were in a trance of some sort and they were just, it's like God took full control and they just wrote exactly what he wanted them to write. She's saying the opposite. She's saying no. They were not his pen. They were his penmen. He inspired them, but the modes of thought and expression are human. Here's another one. The Bible is not given to us in grand superhuman language. Jesus, in order to reach man where he is, took humanity. The Bible must be given in the language of men. Everything that is human is imperfect. So uncomfortable. <laughs> so uncomfortable, you guys. It's like, what do I do with this? One more. Um, again, First Selected Messages, page 22. If, if you want to read up on this some more after, First Selected Messages, like I said, 21. I think it goes to about page 28, um, and it might start before page 21. And also, first chapter of Great Controversy. We, we read the same, same ideas. The Lord speaks to human beings in imperfect speech in order that the degenerate senses, the dull earthly perceptions of earthly beings may comprehend his words. Thus is shown God's condescension. He meets fallen human beings where they are. The Bible, perfect as it is in its simplicity, does not answer to the great ideas of God, for infinite ideas cannot be perfectly embodied in finite vehicles of thought. I'm going to go back to the Bible in a second here, but here's my question. What, what is Ellen White saying? What, what is she saying here? Is she saying that the Bible is merely a human document that's unreliable and faulty like the liberals? And my answer is absolutely not. I mean, I don't have to sit here and give you the, the gazillion statements where she's very clear that the Bible is a sacred book. It's inspired by God. It's the infallible revelation of his will. I think we can all agree on that. What she is doing is the same exact thing that Jesus was doing with the Pharisees. She's pointing out that the words of Scripture are not dictated by God and that our focus, rather than being obsessively on words, needs to be on the message that the words are pointing to. There is something bigger, deeper being revealed in Scripture. So I think this slide might be helpful in, in expressing what she's trying to convey. That the Holy Spirit... Uh, imbues the author with thoughts. And then from those thoughts that the Holy Spirit gives to the author, the author then uses his human words. They are imperfect, they are finite, and they reflect the author's culture, their education, their personality, and their context. But that through these imperfect, finite, contextual words, the author then points us to the perfect, infallible, infinite person of Jesus. And it's there that we find life. Now, in the next sermon, part two, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this because context is really, really important here. And we'll talk a little bit more about it in part two. Um, I'm going to keep on this trajectory for now. But if you have any major questions about that particular portion, I will talk about it in part two. Um, and so this is the best way to summarize Ellen White's view, that the Bible is a divine and human document. She uses those exact words. It's both. It's both working together. It's a divine human document. It uses fallible words to communicate an infallible message. Now, 
She made the same exact comment as well about her own um, experience. Again, this is in first selected messages all the way in page 37. She says this, although I'm as dependent upon the Spirit of God in writing my views as I am in receiving them, yet the words I employ in describing what I have seen are my own, unless they be those spoken by an, an angel, which I always enclose in marks of quotation. So what's the point of all of this, right? This is a bit abstract, a bit theological, but there's, there's, a, there's a practical point to all of this. And it's this, the belief that God picks every word that goes in the biblical text is itself not a biblical teaching. There are times, I don't want to overstate my case here, there are times where God specifically, you know, like the Ten Commandments, I mean, he wrote that with his finger, right? It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. There's a few cases, in, like in the book of Jeremiah, where he says to the prophet, I want you to write what I'm about to show you word for word. But overall, generally speaking, what God does is he inspires the author, and then the author you, chooses what words they're going to use to express what God is revealing. And this is why Jesus is so irritated with the Pharisees. They were obsessing over the words of Scripture. They had that stuff memorized better than anyone alive today. And yet they completely missed Jesus. They were obsessed over the imperfect and finite words. And they missed the perfect, infinite person of Jesus. So I want to empower you this morning. Just because some people believe that the Bible is a mere human document doesn't mean we should invent theories about it being divinely dictated. Inspiration doesn't work that way. God imbues the prophet with thoughts, and then the prophet chooses his own words based on his culture, education, personality, etc. And those words are then meant to be vehicles that carry you and me into the heart of God. We're not meant to obsess over the words themselves, but allow them to take us into the presence of Jesus. So, and how does this help us read the Bible? All right, because we want to get practical here. This isn't a lecture about inspiration. <laughs> I want to get practical. Because I want you guys to be able to open this book, this sacred holy book. I want you to be able to open it, and when you read it, you find life, you find Jesus. Right. How does this help us read the Bible better? When we have a dictated, when we have this view that every word in the text has been dictated, specifically placed there by God, came straight from heaven, there's a few things that tend to emerge as a result. Number one, you end up with these really inflexible interpretations of the text. There's no context. You ignore the context because if they came straight from heaven, context doesn't matter, right? Uh, you end up with a two-dimensional picture of Scripture, you obsess over the words, and you miss Jesus. So I'll give you guys an example. And like I said, I'm going to talk about this more in the next sermon because uh, it's not really the focus for today. I just want to lay the foundation. But I'll give you guys a perfect example from America, the wonderful America. Um, there's a movement in America. I've never seen them here in Australia, which is why I'm saying it's from America. Right? I've never met them here. But there's, there's, a, there's a movement in America called the... Um, Oh, I forget what they're called. I've, I've lost. But they, in their worship services, they dance with snakes. You know, you know what I'm saying? You guys have probably seen them on TV. So they dance with snakes, in their, in like real snakes, like venomous snakes, right? Um, it's very bizarre. But they believe there's that Bible verse that says that we will trample over snakes and scorpions and nothing will harm us right, because of our faith in God. And so they believe that worshiping and jumping around with snakes is a celebration of their faith in God to protect them. 
Now, if you tell them, guys, that's not the context of the verse, you're completely misusing the text, they will say to you, you are just trying to explain away the plain reading of the word of God. And so what do you do with that? Because it sounds really pious, right? But you know instinctively there's something wrong with that. And so this is what happens. When you have this dictation view, you tend to have these really inflexible, two-dimensional, almost fanatical interpretations of the text because you're ignoring the fact that the text was written by a human with a particular context in a particular setting with particular ideas that he was trying to communicate. And again, I'll talk about that more in part two. But when you realize that the words are inspired by God, right? All the scriptures God breathed, not dictated, but inspired by God, then that gives you elasticity. You're like, okay, God inspired this to this particular person, but I need to understand their context so I can get a three-dimensional picture and focus on the message, which is always Jesus, instead of getting lost in minor points that the text isn't really intended to address. And this is why it's so important to understand how Scripture is inspired. Let me go back to my notes here so I don't miss anything. Okay, so my question is, because this is uncomfortable for a lot of us, especially if, you know, we, we tend, at least for me in my experience, I tended to assume that verbal dictation was the way to defend the holiness of God's Word. And so I struggled a lot with this when I first encountered it. Um, but, you know, as, as I continued to study the Bible and, and pray and read through it, I, I realized, okay, there's, there's a more balanced view here. But the question is, what do you do if you say, hey, it sounds interesting, but I don't really buy it. So he, here's a few questions I'd have. What do we do when we realize that Ellen White, as an inspired author, had editors. And that she used, she sent her writings to the editors to make them sound better. That's what editors do, right? I use editors. They can make you sound really good, man. You write something, send it to an editor, it comes back like, yeah, I wrote that. That sounds awesome. Right? Ellen White used editors throughout her life. What do we do with the fact that she took a book like The Great Controversy, one of her signature books, and there's three different editions where she changed things. Not major things, but there were some things that she changed throughout. And the third edition eliminates things that were included in the first edition and vice versa. It's like, wait a minute. If she's an inspired author, does the Holy Spirit need an editor? Does the Holy Spirit need his writings to be updated? Or are we playing with an idea of inspiration that's not really biblical and that in fact even though it sounds pious and it sounds good can set you up to really misinterpret scripture and miss what God wants to say to you and we see the same exact thing in in uh in 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 scripture as well what do we do with the fact that each book, each book in Scripture carries the personality and education of its diverse authors? If it was dictated straight from heaven, you wouldn't see that diversity. For example, the book of, uh, the book of Revelation written by John, John wrote it in Greek, but his Greek wasn't very good. So if you read the original like, manuscripts, there's spelling errors throughout the manuscripts. Grammatical errors Not big deals, but they're there. They're not things you would expect to see if they were divinely dictated. Or what do you do with a book like Luke? Let me read to you a a quick introduction from the book of Luke. Man, that that must be really hard to see from back there. Sorry, Susie. (laughs) I'll read it out loud. Uh, Luke chapter 1. Look at how Luke describes how he wrote the book of Luke. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account in the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those 
who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. What is Luke saying here? He's saying that the book of Luke is the result of research. Luke didn't sit in a room while the Holy Spirit put him in a trance and wrote on his behalf. Luke investigated everything. He went around town. He talked to different people. He compiled into an orderly account the things that he was investigating. This doesn't match a verbal dictation idea. And so we run into lots of problems when we try to hang on to this concept. But now let me be clear before I close. I'm not suggesting for one moment that the Bible is merely a human document that's unreliable, all right? Don't, uh, don't go send Steve Goods an email. Pastor Marcus said, no, no, I didn't. I didn't say that. All Scripture is God-breathed. All the Scripture is profitable. All the Scripture is reliable. It is our only rule of faith and practice, to quote from Ellen White. But that's different from saying all Scripture is God-dictated. And when we recognize that, we can then accept the fact that Scripture is a compilation of finite words that testify of something infinite, Jesus. Jesus needs to be the point of this book. When you open this book to read it, you're looking for Jesus. You're not looking to get caught up in aimless and pointless debates over words. It's Jesus. Where is Jesus? Where is he in the text? He said it to the Pharisees. You read this because you think you have eternal life. And then he said this. I haven't quoted this yet, but I'm quoting it now. These are they which testify of me. But you refuse to come to me that you might have life. I'm going to summarize this example one more time by sharing you guys a letter between Ellen White and one of her contemporaries, a man named David Paulson. This is what David wrote to her. David Paulson writing, and the quote for where this is is in the next slide. I was led, this is a letter David wrote to Ellen, I was led to conclude and most firmly believe that every word that you ever spoke in public or private, that every letter you wrote under any and all circumstances was as inspired as the Ten Commandments. This is David writing to Ellen saying, this is what I was led to believe, which is weird because that's what I was led to believe. So there you go. And this is Ellen's response coming from her own pen. So if, if any of you get angry at this sermon, I'll send you the address for Elmshaven, her house. You can write her a letter. She's not alive anymore, but the letter will go there instead of me. She says this, my brother, you have studied my writings diligently and you have never found that I've made any such claims. Neither will you find that the pioneers in our cause ever made such claims. The Bible points to God as its author, yet it was written by human hands. And in the varied style of its different books, it presents the characteristics of several writers. The truths revealed are all given by inspiration of God, yet they are expressed in the words of men. And the bottom line is this. The Bible is a human and divine document. It is an infallible story, an infallible revelation of God's heart, shared infallible words. 
And the most basic way of applying this, because this is, again, this is meant to be practical, not just theoretical or academic. The most basic way of applying this is we need to focus on the word, capital letters, Jesus, revealed in the words rather than simply on the words themselves. And we do ourselves a disservice. And I, I can say this because I've been raised an Adventist, right? Like we memorize scripture but have no idea how it points to Jesus. We memorize doctrine, but have no idea how it points to Jesus. We obsess over the words instead of the word, and Jesus was clear. There is life in the words only as they reveal the word. And the tragedy of so many Adventists I've known, myself included, I was in this boat as well, people who've been in church all their lives and they've memorized all the verses and they can defend all the doctrines, and they have become obsessed over the words of Scripture. And they get into these huge arguments over this translation is better than this one because these words and those words. And, and, and they go on and on and on and on and on with the Greek and the Hebrew. And they miss the word of life. What a tragedy. What a tragedy to have invested your entire life and to have missed the point. And this is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. I'm going to conclude now. I'm going to go back to Jesus. This is what Jesus says to the Pharisees who obsess over the words. This is what he says to them. Sorry, let me get to the slide. John 5, 41, 42. This is what he says. Your approval means nothing to me because I know you don't have God's love in you. Don't read that too quickly. You got to let that thing sink in. It's like, wait a minute. What are you saying, Jesus? I mean... You're trying to tell me that all of that Bible study and all of that Bible memorization and all of that theology and all of that doctrinal sermon, and, or, or sorry, knowledge, and the love of God wasn't in them? Let that not be our story. Over the years, I've met many people they're great health reformers, and they can explain Daniel and Revelation better than, better than the professors. And no one likes to be around them because they're full of words, but they don't have the word in their heart. The Pharisees were full of words, but they didn't have the word. Practical application. In the next sermon, I want to talk about context because that's really the major distinction right dictation versus inspiration one leads you to explore context for a three-dimensional understanding of what god's saying the other doesn't right that's the main practical distinction so we're going to explore that more how to do that in the next sermon but for now here's my encouragement to you i want you to i want you to read your bible I want you to memorize its verses, right? The Bible says, you know, these are the promises. We, we escape the corruption in the world through these promises that God has given us. You know, memorize them. Commit them to your heart. Take it seriously. But don't forget that the words of Scripture are there to point you to the Word. And if we miss that, we miss it all. Ellen White said it best. Got one more quote. Let me see if I can uh, skip through some of these slides, get to that, <clears throat> get to that final quote. 
Here it is. Gospel Workers, page 315. The sacrifice of Christ as an atonement for sin is the great truth around which all other truths cluster. And this is Jesus the center, right? In order to be rightly understood and appreciated, every truth in the word of God from Genesis to Revelation must be studied in the light that streams from the cross of Calvary. I present before you the great grand monument of mercy and regeneration, salvation and redemption, the Son of God uplifted on the cross. She goes on to say, it's not there that this should be the center of every discourse given by our ministers. And I would go on to say, it should be the center of every discourse given by any of us. Jesus is the point of all scripture. Had the Pharisees recognized this, maybe John 5.39, I took the liberty of using my imagination here. Maybe John 5.39 would read a little bit differently if the Pharisees had recognized that it wasn't about the words, but about the word that the words were pointing to. Maybe it would read something like this. You search the scriptures, for in them you have found me, and in me you have found life, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the experience that I want for you. I don't want anyone in this room, and I don't want anyone, whoever joins the Jundalub Community Church at any point in the future, to spend their entire life hoping for the pastor to preach something that gives them life. It's here. It's here. You can have it. You don't need me to do that for you. You just got to sit down, open this book, and say, Holy Spirit, help me to see Jesus. And then, as I said, when we go through the next few sermons, as you understand how to open up the text and how to explore the context and get that three-dimensional view, you, you can begin to extrapolate from each verse things that are so beautiful that I would never be able to preach a sermon that good. And that's what I want for each of you. And for anyone who ever joins this church, to have the capacity to say, God, me and you, I'm opening this book so I can experience you any day of the week. Let's pray. Dear God, some really confronting things in Jesus there. Confronting, uncomfortable, but also beautiful. Because in Jesus, we discover that the point of all of Scripture is Him. That the words lead us to Him. That in every reading of the text, He invites us. Don't get caught up in pointless side issues, focus on me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Father, my prayer this morning as we continue to go through this Bible study series is that each of us would come to the place where at any moment, at any day, we could open this Bible and with your Holy Spirit, we can experience the life of Jesus so that we are no longer dependent on a program to feed us spiritually, but that we can come to this book that you've blessed us with and in there find the life that you have for each and every one of us. Find Jesus. So I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for the discomfort of Jesus' words. I thank you for the discomfort of Ellen White's statements too, that, Help us to balance out 
refocus and discover once more that it's all about Jesus. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.